You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, uh, I do. Let me just go ahead and get this out of the way about the facial hair. Uh, I had done it earlier for various reasons, <clears throat> grown the beard. Not sure that I could because I never had grown one, but I had I grew it for various reasons, but shaved it off. Allison didn't care for it all that much. I didn't care for it all that much. I shaved it off, went to the mountains, and my grandkids in the mountains were very disappointed that I didn't have the beard. So I decided with a week off from church and then I could get back and and, and the kids are planning to come down for Thanksgiving and they're fully expecting me to go, ho, ho, ho. So uh, that's why I went ahead and, and did it uh, for until Thanksgiving and then we'll see how it goes from there. Well, as Bert Wallace, who did a wonderful job, I, I always love it when the any of the elders uh, lead our prayer time or staff. They just do such a beautiful job. And uh, Bert mentioned that Wednesday is our day of fasting and prayer. I'm sure you can't imagine what our focus is going to be this week. The day where we are only two weeks away from finding out who the next president of the United States will be on Wednesday. Um, some of you, like me, are election night junkies, you may want to actually move your time of fasting up a little bit, but please be fasting and praying. Do your best to take a 24-hour period. Usually what we call for is the church is to begin Tuesday night after dinner and then break the fast on Wednesday night uh, after we have had prayer here together at 6.30, but we won't be meeting here, so uh, just sometime in the evening, six the 6.30 on Wednesday, you you can break the fast or just whatever works for you this week. We need to be praying together uh, about the Lord's mercy on our lives. We all know we're in a mess just as a nation. We're at each other's throats. If you watch Social Dilemma on Netflix, social media is sending us further and further to our respective corners and it's harder and, and, and harder, more and more difficult to live in peace and harmony with one another. That's one of the reasons our church has to be a testimony of that when it's so difficult in the world. First Timothy 2 tells us to pray for kings and all those who are in authority that we might live quiet and peaceful lives, godly and dignified in every way. So be praying for this. Samuel Johnson, the famous 18th century British writer, identified, in fact, in the Oxford National or the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography as the most distinguished man of letters in English history. Now, you think about that. Uh, had quite a way with words. Johnson is famous for the quip, depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. May I be frank from the outset of this morning? I've given fair warning. If you think children shouldn't be watching today, that's, that's quite okay. Uh, you can give a filtered version later. Believers in our land may be facing persecution for our commitment to the gospel 
in a, a higher level of persecution, persecution sooner than we think. And opposition to our message may be stronger than we expect. You may think, look, surely people don't like our message. I realize there's, there, there's tension between the culture and the church. But who's going to be facing a noose or a guillotine anytime soon? Even though you see guillotines dragged around the country and symbolically beheading those who, with whom they disagree. It's not that I expect extreme persecution in the immediate future. And while the threat we face is far more likely to be realized in further suppression of public gospel proclamation and in social and economic sanctions that force a radical shift in resources available to outspoken believers. A growing number of Christian leaders are nonetheless concerned that physical harm could be part of our suffering sooner than we think. Today's text is Romans 12, 14 to 21. I'm so grateful that David Calvert read some of that passage a little while ago. And it was written by the Apostle Paul at a time when believers accepted opposition to the gospel as normal. Now, we are increasingly willing to accept opposition to the gospel as normal. Although Christians were not being dragged out of their homes and thrown to wild beast at the time Paul wrote to the Roman believers, the certainty of increased persecution was not in question, and the executions began, in fact, about eight to ten years after Paul wrote his letter. They knew persecution was going to increase. They didn't expect that. But when it began, it, be it lasted for nearly 300 years. Now, it was uh, uh, not systemic. It wasn't all the time persecution. It was sporadic was the word I was trying to find. But nonetheless, there were periods of time where people were brought before the governors of the land and said, do you believe in Jesus? Do you renounce Jesus? No, I do not. Just say Caesar is Lord. You, don't, you can say Jesus is Lord, but you must say Caesar is Lord. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Take him out on the execution, just like that. No jail time, just to the arena, to a cross, executed. After thinking and praying about this message for a long time, and after studying and meditating on this text this week, I am convinced the way we live in preparation for possible persecution is how we should always live. It's not that this text is going to call us to some extreme form of living. No, this is the way we're always to live with a theology of the cross rather than a theology of glory. Today's introduction is lengthy. I'm going to tell you that right up front. Approximately half the sermon. But those who were the first to hear Paul's teaching from the book of Romans had no illusions that the culture would love the gospel, nor that the culture would eventually leave the church alone if they just satisfied the culture a little bit more with their own mission. mission, And that, they, that the culture, they had no illusions that the culture would ever be content for believers to live quietly with their strange ideas. We are not as clear on these issues. 
Please bear with me as I lay out my concern before going to the text to determine, as Francis Schaeffer would ask, how should we then live? I recently read a quote with which my senior citizen self immediately resonated. I thought getting old would take longer. It's true, isn't it? Those of us who have some years on us. For many decades, we have heard that our nation, the United States of America, is a young nation, a young empire, a young democracy, if you will. But out of the blue, in case you have not been paying attention, our democracy has grown old. We are so old in fact, that much of what passes for progress in our day is little different than the paganism of ancient Rome. Now, paganism is not a word that is thrown around. It's, it's, it's perceived as a pejorative term. People don't think about it in, in good terms. But when you start making the comparisons, you can see uh, why those comparisons are, are, are made. And this is what Stephen Smith, Stephen D. Smith, not Stephen A. Smith, says uh, in his book, Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. Smith is a, a law professor at the University of San Diego, and his book is more academic than popular, so don't buy this book unless you seriously want to dig in. And you've got to understand it's more history than it is what's it going to be like in the days. But you see the undeniable uh, similarities between Rome in the first century and America in the 21st century. If you want to read something in this vein that is more accessible, I highly recommend Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher, who was interviewed by Dr. Al Mohler this past week. It's on his website, albertmohler.com. And, and, and please know that Dr. Moeller is speaking much about culture and church issues in these days. While Rod Dreher is not evangelical, he is a believer who understands the times and the church's place in our day. Now, lest you think that comparisons between Rome and Washington, D.C. are exaggerated, consider these words from historian Kyle Harper, speaking of first and second century Christians, quote, Sexuality came to mark the great divide between Christians and the world. Close quote, that's all. Sexuality came to mark the great divide between Christians and the world. The connection with our day is, of course, that socially, the socially unacceptable Christian belief that marriage is between one man and one woman and all sexual activity outside marriage is sinful. Now notice, I, I did not say that all temptation is sinful, but all practice outside of God's design is. Are believers perfect in this? Heavens, no, we're not perfect in this realm. But we are grateful for God's forgiveness for those who repent of their sins. The question asked today is, why does anyone need forgiveness when they are born to live in non-traditional relationships? In the past, two people who loved each other were not allowed to live as nature designed them 
to be. Evil people kept them from each other. And while we're at it, what about gender identity? We're going to change all that. And you may be surprised to learn how soon the Equality Act could become law in our land. The Equality Act will likely require medical professionals to perform or assist with abortions. This would also apply to sex reassignment surgeries, and employers would be forced to provide insurance for the same. Faith-based adoption agencies would be forced to comply with the new definitions of what constitutes a family. And while it is not yet clear what impacts such legislature would have on churches, I think most of us see the culture's intention to prevent promotion of the gospel as an acceptable belief and acceptable way of life. Robert George, who is a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University, wrote the foreword for Stephen Smith's book that I referenced earlier. Professor George, writing about Christians in first century Rome, said this, quote, Christian ideas about sexual norms were revolutionary. And the pagan establishment was no more welcoming of revolutionaries, even nonviolent ones than any other establishment is. So paganism could not and did not tolerate the Christians, even when Christianity was far too weak to pose any real challenge to political authority. Minority religions that could coexist with the dominant paganism were allowed to do just that, to coexist, but the Romans perceived Christian ideas about sex as a threat. They feared that Christianity would, in Stephen Smith's evocative phrase, turn out the lights on that merry dance. And that, of course, is what Christianity eventually did. Close quote. I understand that there are more public and immediate points of conflict between believers and non-believers than sexual sexual morality at at the moment. Perhaps because contemporary ethics about sex and gender are thought to be no longer in dispute. If current trends continue though, Christians will be persecuted because of the belief that our bodies are not our own. But they were designed by our creator for his purposes. And Christians cannot give assent to a lifestyle that denies the created order. We cannot abandon God's design for sexuality without abandoning the gospel. Are you listening, Pope Francis? Today, many who oppose The gospel are utopian at their core and cannot abide competing thoughts about what is right and wrong. If you are determined to create utopia, you cannot tolerate dissent. And if allegiance will not be given willingly, then opposition must first be marginalized 
and eventually eliminated altogether. My fear is that Christians will be so divided about where we need to stand with the church and where we need to join the culture in calling out the church that when systemic persecution arrives, it will be too, too late for us to band together to stand against the persecution. That day may not come next week, nor might it come in the next 25 years, but it will come. And our children and grandchildren, as well as we, need to be ready for that day. Believers will have to decide whether or not their faith will be strong enough to endure persecution. Which again may include the loss, this is already happening, of a dream job, the loss of a home, just, just think about this. What about if our faith in Christ, we knew it would cost us giving up our home and moving into a much smaller place because economically we were going to be so marginalized. The loss of freedom to worship as we choose and possibly it may mean the kind of persecution that includes imprisonment and torture. Look, politics is already a blood sport. They can't wait to put each other in jail. They just can't wait to do it. If we are not ready, then perhaps it would be best for us to soften our views before such a day arrives. But if we belong to Jesus, his call is for us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. One last word about this before we go to the text. In 1939... 1939, almost 100 years ago, over 80 years ago, T.S. Eliot said that it is impossible to have a neutral society. Either we will be a Christian society or a pagan society. He was talking about Western civilization, of course. Eliot's point was not that people will start carving out wooden gods and worshiping them, but that citizens will have located the sacred in the imminent rather than in the transcendent. And this is the key to this whole thing. What <clears throat> that means is that the sacred is no longer in heaven about whom we sing holy, holy, holy. But the sacred, as Stephen Smith says, finds its locus in nature, the environment, or in the human body, or in the state. Or in some sacralized conception of the course of history. Which affirms as true the myth of progress. Now what that means simply is this. That history is never static. It's always progressing. It's, it's never going back. We can't go back. It's always Going forward. So it makes sense. If, if this is what the world believes. That we're all continually progressing. When you hear that Christians are said to be on the wrong side of history. The question for us is. And we cannot address this soon enough. Are we on the right side of the gospel? If so. We must depend on the Holy Spirit to help us live 
according to design. Now, you may think I have been very exercised about this, but what the Scripture is going to call us to do is to be meek and humble and love those who hate us. Romans 12, 14 to 21 is our text. But before we begin looking to the Word, would you join me in prayer? Father, many people in the land are anxious and nervous and even panicked on both sides of the political aisle, on both sides of the gospel. Uh, there are a lot of people un, uh, very concerned about what is going to happen. We worship a sovereign God. You are the king of the universe. You created us. And we acknowledge that we have lived better than many believers around the world for all of the time that the church has been in existence. Lord, uh, we pray that as increasingly the world system is opposed to the gospel in invisible in and and sometimes even violent ways. We pray that you would calm our hearts, comfort our hearts, and prepare our hearts for the days ahead. You are the same God today that you were yesterday and always have been, and you will be the same God in the years to come. Open our hearts to your word and speak clearly to us and give us the will and the heart to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to work quickly through our text, explaining the meaning of the verses before bringing application, which will also go right back to the text. Uh, application for our present circumstances. Now, remember, what the word means to me doesn't matter until I first understand what the word means. And that means understanding what it meant in original context, what circumstances were happening during that time. And really, the Roman Christians were a little beyond where we are now, but there are some similarities. Uh, correct interpretation will not be difficult for us in this passage. We'll see what Paul was saying and what God was saying through the Apostle Paul. Romans was written to a church that consisted of both Gentiles and Jewish believers. And they sometimes struggled to agree on all things. And they were already marginalized in society with the prospects of more significant persecution looming in their future. Hmm. Let's see, they didn't always agree. They were marginalized, persecution looming. This sounds rather familiar, doesn't it, to our time. In verses 14 to 16, Paul informs believers how they should interact with other believers and how they should interact with non-believers. How to get along with those in the family and those outside the family that don't like the family much at all. It would be nice if Paul had said, well, I'm going to first address how you should get along with Christians, then how you should get along with unbelievers, and then how you should get along with those who really hate the gospel and hate those who proclaim the gospel. But life isn't that way. It just kind of is all mixed together. So we, we get Paul's quick turns going back and forth as he's speaking 
to the Romans in this text. In verse 14, Paul echoes Jesus' teaching about blessing those who persecute believers. His teaching was and remains countercultural. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who do you wrong. Critical theory about which many of you here in our day is designed to flip the position of oppressed and oppressor. It's not so much we should meet in the middle and talk about things so that we can move forward. It's more about you've had your turn, now it's our turn. How should we respond? Christians are to bless those who persecute them. And to bless means to speak well of them. How are you doing leading up to the election? Blessing does not imply agreement. But blessing is required. In verse 15, it seems as though Paul reverts to instructing believers on how they are to interact with others. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In the, in the body, that is. Perhaps he was addressing the conservative and progressive, I'm sorry, I mean the Jewish and the Gentile elements in his church. Or maybe he was instructing them how to encourage one another in persecution. Because the fact is that persecution may hit Ricky and April Lee and not necessarily Bert and Kelly Wallace. And so maybe he's saying, Bert and Kelly, you need to encourage Ricky and April. For certain, Paul is referencing church life in verse 16 because he teaches believers how to live with one another, which our students are learning about us. Pastor Jeff goes through the one another's in the New Testament. He, he, he tells them how to live with one another in humility, not seeking prominence in the body, have nothing to do with pride, he says. Verse 17 instructs us to give up on getting even with others. I'm going to guess that you have the same temptation that I do. And that is to delight when someone who has been mocking me or my beliefs gets his or hers. And when they fall and when they are humiliated in public, you know, it's the temptation is to be really happier that about that but we are called to not give as good as we receive but if I don't look out for myself no one else will have you forgotten about God have you forgotten about God looking out for you Look, in a day where we, we have to immediately go online and talk about our problems and our beliefs and how we're being persecuted and we need others to say, oh, that's terrible, that person with that. <clears throat> Let it go. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord and you don't even get to say, you know what? This guy was giving me a really hard time, but the Lord took care of it. You don't get to say that. Just let the Lord deal with it. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. And do your best as commanded in verse 18. To live at peace with all, both believers and unbelievers. So how were you known 
as a contentious person or as a peacemaker? Verses 19 to 21 are difficult verses for almost all of us to apply. Why? Because we're all about fairness, especially when the one being treated unfairly is moi. Verse 19 seems to indicate that we can defend ourselves against wrong. Or we can let God defend us. I don't think there's room for both. And I think that's what he's saying. Most of the translations say leave room for God's wrath. The problem with us responding in equal measure to someone who has wronged us. Is that we have no sanctified sense of justice. Our sense of justice is flawed. God will always do the right thing, but we must be willing to wait for God to deal with our enemies in his way and in his time. Now, when I say that our sense of justice is flawed, we know what biblical justice is, and we need to pursue biblical justice. I'm not calling for us to give up on that. I'm just saying that when someone has done you wrong personally, And you say, well, I'm going to get, you did this to me, so I'm going to do that to you. That game never ends. I have had a friend yesterday who said, well, you know, man, it's a lot of violence in the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I'm like, wait, you don't understand. That was a mercy. God was saying, don't constantly elevate, just like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Because you kill one of ours, we'll kill two of yours. That's the way human justice works. God says, no, 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 rein that in. Here's a measured response. But that can only be administered by government authorities. And in the Old Testament, of course, that was God was the ultimate ruler. So our sense of justice, the the ways that we respond to others is flawed. And we have to allow God to deal with our enemies in his way and in his time. In the meantime... We pray for God's mercies on those who seek to do us harm. Just like Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross. (laughs) In verse 20, we're told to help our enemies when they are down. For in so doing, we will heap burning coals on their head. Now, we get the first part. Help your enemy when he's hungry, feed him. But... What does it mean to heap burning coals on your enemy's head or that that will be the result of you helping him? It could be a continuation of leaving room for God's wrath. It could be God's wrath coming down on him. Or it could be that you are to give burning coals to a neighbor whose fire has gone out. Or it could mean that they will be ashamed of their previous behavior because of Your kindness toward them despite their persecution of you. This last explanation fits the best and it's perfectly in sync with 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. This would demonstrate God's character. And remember, God's goodness leads to repentance. Romans 2, 4. So verse 21 is a fitting summary for this section. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. How can we do this? How do we overcome 
evil with good. You know, it's like one of those verses you say, okay, sure. But wait a minute, how, how do I do that? Well, the answer is love, of course, genuine love. Even though we began <clears throat> this message in verse 14, the larger section begins in verse 9 where Paul writes, let love be genuine, or some of your translations say without hypocrisy. Paul's words in the second half of Romans 12 seem to be an exposition on Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What does that look like in our day? Well, five points of application. Beginning with live According to the truth of the gospel, practicing the discipline of loving your enemies. Before we consider anything else, we, we must remember that Romans 12 rests firmly on the foundation of Romans 1 through 11. Where the gospel is as thoroughly and systematically presented as clearly as it is anywhere in scripture. We're sinners. And our sins have separated us from God in order or to do something about our sins. God sent his son who is the last Adam. He did, got right what Adam got wrong and thus was eligible as the perfect sacrifice. He was perfect so when he died on the cross and God poured out his wrath on Jesus. He became an acceptable sacrifice. And those of us who acknowledge our sins and repent of our sins and put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross as payment for our sins. Well, at that moment, we become a member of God's family. And we no longer identified with Adam. We're identified with Jesus. But as we know, Adam stays inside of us and, and we struggle with that. But when we come to the problems that separate or come to the issues that separate believers and non-believers, we cannot work our way from these 21st centuries back to the scripture. We have to begin with the gospel and then work towards solutions for the problems that are fueled by the sinful behavior of sinful people who are outside the gospel. The only way the kingdom of God can have any say in this culture is not through cleaning up all the stuff that's been wrong. It's through the redeemed people of God who comprise Christ's body on the earth. Now, if we live as we should, we should be cleaning up a lot of the problems and it should go out from where we are. You may have heard this past week that a Muslim extremist entered a church in Nice, France and killed three people, virtually beheading a 60-year-old woman. Look, we've seen shootings in our nation, but there is not yet open and systemic persecution of believers. What we do see, though, is blame being cast on the church for the emotional struggles of those who think differently than Scripture teaches us about our sexuality. And we're blamed for racial injustice in our land. And the church has an ugly mark 
on it. We've got an ugly stain because of our participation in racist practices. But the gospel always is the place to begin when you talk about solutions to it, all forms of injustice. We follow biblical principles of grace as best we can and do not discriminate against any because of race or gender. But we cannot go beyond what God's word allows in acceptance of human behavior. What we can do, though, is to practice loving those who disagree with us and do not respond in kind when they accuse and ridicule us. This may sound, although I doubt it does, sound much easier than it is, but it is God's command for us. Second, be humble and quiet in a day of arrogant shouting and posturing. Repeatedly in Romans 11 and 12, God, through the Apostle Paul, warns us against being prideful as we live within the body of Christ. This is also expected of us as we enter the public square. Look, if we enter in anger, we've lost already. If we enter depending on reasonable thoughts and and our education or our emotional connection with people, and we're not dependent on the Holy Spirit and the gospel, the word of God, we've lost already. One of the ways to practice the discipline of loving our neighbors is to practice the discipline of keeping our mouths shut, which is not easy for a big mouth like mine. I have to say, I just have to say, I'm that guy, you know, that can be. I try to guard against it. But when someone's talking, I'm like, and they know I'm just ready to talk. Pull back. Give space for the Holy Spirit to do his work. It is necessary if we are to make any progress in our next point. Pursue peace, biblical peace, as much as it depends on you. It's not breaking news for me to tell you that it is impossible to get along with everyone. Believers are called, though, to, to as far as it depends on, on them, to get along with those inside the church and outside the church, even with those who oppose the gospel. Whenever I engage an unbeliever, I seek to find points of agreement that exist between us. That does not mean, though, that I air the church's dirty laundry in hopes of a more interested audience, nor that I acquiesce to the new cultural mandate of, about all sorts of ways that we ought to believe and live. Now, look, I acknowledge the church has a mark against it in a lot of areas. But I can't say, and so therefore, we need to change our beliefs. And, believe, and, and folks understand this. The culture as it currently is, it exists, and it's always existed, just feels a lot more pressure for it now. But the culture will not accept anything but total acquiescence. Sooner or later, you're going to say, that's a line I can't go beyond. And fact is, you may as well stop way back, several lines short. Sooner or later, 
the culture says, agree with us totally, and that changes every day. Or don't agree at all. You're the enemy. Remember, the world blames the church for much uh, that is wrong in our land. While we are called to be meek and humble as Jesus was, we must not apologize for the gospel. I fear that many believers will be far down the social justice road before they realize it's, it's not the misbehavior of ungodly believers that are on trial. It's the gospel that is ultimately on trial. To live peaceably with others is to be a peacemaker. And our first responsibility is to encourage people to receive the peace offering of God's Son in their place that appeases the wrath of God. In other words, we cannot go beyond the gospel in seeking to live at peace with others. What if they reject the gospel? Love them anyway. Love them. Genuine love. And live in peace with them as much as you can, which is the focus of the fourth application point. Surprise those who oppose you with love. Not as a tactic. Because you are united with Christ. And he forgives his enemies. I remember years ago, Sean Cross, Sean Cross, who has finished the work in D.C., and Sean and Melissa are now in, in Durham, uh, he, where he is pastorate. Vintage, of course, I just couldn't remember it. Vintage, I wanted to say Redeemer, but Vintage Church in Durham. I remember years ago, Sean Cross, while he was at D.C., I heard this uh, message, said that we're never more like Jesus than when we forgive our enemies. That may be the most difficult command for a believer to follow. It catches people off guard when the forgiveness that only comes by divine love or through divine love is offered, extended to those who have done damage. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Rome church, no doubt recalled the words of the martyr Stephen as he lay dying at Saul's consent. Saul was holding the, the garments of those who were putting Stephen to death. Death. They looked to, to, to Saul. Used to be called Saul. He's Paul now to us. But they looked to him and he was like, go ahead, kill him. Stephen looked into the heavens and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And don't you know that so many people said, what a waste of a life, Stephen, Stephen. He's gone. And here we are, reading Paul's letter today. Last, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you ever long for the good old days? When I start thinking about the good old days, 60s music starts going through my head, you know, early 60s. I'm thinking, oh, those were the good old days. Or, 
And it seemed to me that the world was much clearer back then with right and wrong. Maybe you feel the opposite. Maybe you look forward to conquering the sins and the mistakes of days gone by. Either sentiment, not, I've written here, can keep us, might keep us, but will keep us from obeying the command of Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are exactly where we're supposed to be in space and time. God expects us to look to him rather to an ideal that never was and never will be before Jesus returns. We've heard it in our time at the table, have we not? As often as you do this, you proclaim his death until he returns. A focus on reclaiming the past or bringing about a desired future will keep us from living in the truth of the gospel with the theology of the cross. You'll have to go back to some previous sermons to understand the difference between theology of the cross, theology of glory. The gospel is about repentance and forgiveness. It is about God's love for us. The New Testament makes it clear that before we knew Jesus, we were God's enemies. And in spite of that, he loved us and died for us anyway. Oh, blessed Jesus, overcoming evil with good. Oh, blessed privilege it is to follow in his steps. Not being overwhelmed or overcome by evil. But overcoming evil with good. And should persecution come at much higher levels than currently exist. What are we to do? We're to imitate Jesus. As we are told to do in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, whatever suffering we are called to endure can never be compared to the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are, though, in our suffering, brought into closer and more intimate communion with the Savior who gave his all for us. No wonder we consider it a privilege to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Lord, Put our hearts and minds in the right place. And even as we pray to prepare for persecution, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering in these ways, who dare not let others know publicly that they are a Christian, but who worship you. And often when they're found out, pay the ultimate price of their lives. But you've told us, fear not those 
who can kill the body. You've said the fear of the one who can kill body and cast body and soul into hell. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a beautiful sense of a fear of God rather than a fear of the culture. And may we do the ministry, the work and ministry that you've called us to do in this day, as you always do, but we're aware of it now at different levels. Do the work of loving those who persecute us and despise us. Thank you for your love for us. So undeserved, so unworthy we were. And yet you loved us anyway. How did you love us? Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.